Now, uh, while you're turning there, so uh, to Andrew's defense, uh, that reading, he didn't know y'all were going to read with him. <laughs> I don't think that was the plan, which was fine. But, uh, uh, and so he got a little tongue-tied, which we were laughing about back there just a moment ago. Um, but uh, that's from the Heidelberg Catechism. And um, if you want a copy of that at some point, I'll give it to you. But I love that. It's a little long. I told him to get ready for it because it's a little long. Uh, but it, it, you know, it talks about out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned or been a sinner. That's pretty, pretty good stuff. Pretty, really good stuff. So, um, well, turn in your, your uh, Bibles to Romans 8. And let's, I'm going to read in the first four verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and hearing and the preaching of your word. Speak through your word to us this morning, uh, as we should always expect that you would do. It is infallible, inerrant, inspired by you. We should come to it being transformed and helped us this way this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to be, we're starting a new series on probably one of the most famous, loved passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. Uh, it is, it, 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 it's the pinnacle of all the chapters of the Bible in some way. Some have called it the chapter of chapters. And so either I'm a fool or something to step into something so loved, so familiar... And, and preached and taught so much. But I, one of the things I wanted to do is kind of ask the question, kind of now what? If you're a believer and, and we're believers and we come into Christ, a good question to ask is now what? And that sometimes gets forced upon you as life hits. Reminds me of um, the movie Finding Nemo. Do you remember that movie? Well, there's these fish stuck in this little fish tank. Well, they come up with, they can come up, concoct a plan in order to escape this tank and go into the free ocean. And the way that they do it is they got to get the tank to get really dirty by breaking the filter or whatever. So that when the, when the, uh, the owner of the tank, this dentist guy, will fish them out and put them into little individual plastic bags full of water, that they would roll these bags out the window across the street into the ocean. That's their plan. And at the end of the movie, uh, you find that they have succeeded. They have rolled across the road, and they have landed in the ocean in their little plastic bags full of water. And then they look at each other and say, now what? <laughs> right? Now what? Reminds me of a couple I talked to, I had married, I had talked to, and they were so focused on the wedding day. I mean, she particularly I mean, I won't call her a bridezilla, but she was close to it. 
And I mean, it was just this elaborate thing and all this, whatever. And at the kind of, they finally got married and the ceremony was done. And there was this kind of like this, okay, now what? And I said to them, well, I could have suggested at least one thing. Nobody got it. But there's this point in our lives, especially as God's people, where we come to a place where it's kind of a little bit of a now what? And that's what Romans chapter 8 does. Paul, from chapter 1, moving all the way through chapter 7, lays out the desperate need for the gospel and how God amazingly provides uh, through His Son the grace of the gospel and how that plays out in our sin and our struggles and so on. And then he gets to this place and he comes to Romans chapter 8 and he says, therefore. And this therefore is like the big now what? What should our Christian lives look like? And then he goes through this chapter touching and cramming together some of the deepest ideas, some of the most beautiful ideas and some of the most practical ideas for us as God's people. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is kind of just trudging through this chapter asking the now what of our faith. And But here, Paul begins this chapter with some of the most comforting, beautiful words in Scripture. Probably the most profound statement of the reality of what it means to be in Christ. And he basically says if we are genuinely in Christ, we will experience a full acquittal of judgment, freedom from law and sin, and we should experience that right now. So the first of these is that we experience the full acquittal of God. He says this in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, before we get into this too deeply, we need to be careful. When you're reading Scripture, you're studying Scripture, there's a couple things you don't want to do. One is you don't want to remove anything, and you don't want to add anything. And in this case, you want to be really careful not to remove the phrase, in Christ. Because if you remove that phrase, all you're left with then is, there's just no condemnation. And our world, would, our world thrives on that idea. There's just no condemnation. And as a matter of fact, many Christians today would, would land at this position and say that God is just gracious. It doesn't matter whether you're in Christ or out of Christ or you know Him or not. God's just really gracious. There's just no condemnation. God is just in Christ because He's done this thing or whatever. He's just forgiven everyone. But Paul makes it clear that it is in Christ. So let's go to what the opposite of that is, is that outside of Christ, there is condemnation. Follow? And then some would say, well, that's, that's just harsh. That's exclusive. You know, that's not, that's, this is just Paul. Paul's creating something else. This isn't Jesus. Well, not necessarily. If you look in John 3.18... Jesus says, whoever believes in him, 
is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there is a condemnation. Outside of Christ, there is a condemnation. And and if you really want to get the beauty and the import of this, this verse, you have to understand the fact that because there's no condemnation, that it's a beautiful thing because there is condemnation. And Paul has clearly established this idea moved up to this chapter. Look at, look at me in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. These are all up there for me, Mark. Okay? The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's saying that it has been revealed and is going to be revealed that God's wrath, his extreme judgment and anger will go against all unrighteousness. Okay, then we see in verse 2, I mean, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 5. It says, and because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's judgment, righteous judgment, will be revealed. And so he's building a case here that everybody, whether you are religious or not, whether you're a Jew or a not, no matter what, you fall into this category. We'll talk about this a little bit later. Okay? Okay, so he's establishing this whether no matter who you are, and in and, uh, chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done it. Every one of us are guilty. And not only that, but we're slaves to it. We're trapped in it. And he begins to build a case in chapter 6 and 7 that we are, in fact, we are in fact bound by it, tied up in chains to our sin. And no matter how much we try to get out of it, the, the worse it gets. And he says this in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 17. Yep. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient to the heart of the standard teaching which you are committed. And he, and he lays out this, this idea it's not something we can just hit a button and choose to walk away from. We are slaves to it. And so, and in, and in chapter 7, I don't have this verse, he gets to the point where he's like, who would deliver, the wretched man, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this? And so now, in Christ, we no longer have condemnation. What does this mean? What does this word condemnation mean? This word condemnation is a legal term. And it's a legal term <clears throat> that, uh, that really it means guilt and having received a guilty verdict, but not only a guilty verdict, but also the, the sentence and the judgment that should go along with it. So it's the, the verdict has been made, sentences has been passed, and now we are moving towards our, the, the full judgment and punishment of our sin. That's the, the word here that he is using. And so this legal term. And so to say there is no 
condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Is to say that there is no more guilty verdict, no more deserved punishment or sentence. It has been taken away. It is gone. And we see, and Paul lays this out and how it happens in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place in the judgment so that we could take his. And we see in uh, Romans 5.9, he had, had also um, built this idea ahead of this. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we were destined for court. The, the verdict has come. Guilty. The sentence is passed. And now we await the full reality of the punishment. That's this word condemnation. And outside of Christ... Every human being is under that verdict, under that judgment. And so the good news of this passage is that that, in because of Christ, we'll see a little bit later how that happens, um, because of Christ, because Him coming and standing in our place, that is now absolutely, totally removed. Not just a little bit. So here's one of those times... We've got to be really careful not to add or substitute. It doesn't say, you know, there is a little bit of condemnation or there's sometimes condemnation. No, he says, that he uses the full negative here, there is no condemnation. What a beautiful truth, isn't it? So let's use an illustration here. The verdict is in. You've been bound by chains and you're walking out to the firing range they're going to tie you to a pole put a bag over your head and they're going to load the gun one round at a time and instead of those rounds firing into us every single round was fired into Jesus for you. But here's the thing. The gun is empty. There are no more bullets. The wrath and judgment of God was fully expended on His Son, Jesus. It is no more. It is gone. It is forever gone on your behalf. The gun is empty. That is what he's saying here. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a series of paintings by a guy named Abraham Solomon. I I heard it referred to in reading some of uh, Charles Spurgeon's work. I'll bring up the first picture here. Um, This first picture is called Awaiting the Verdict. I don't know if you've ever had an art class. I love it when an art teacher, like, breaks down a, 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 a painting. And you can begin to see what he's trying to get at a little more deeper. Now, you can see right away. You see this man waiting for a verdict. 
and it's obviously he is in distraught and worried and, and, and anxious and afraid. And, and his, his wife is, uh, is desperate. Um, and everything here is dark. And, and you see down the hall to the courtroom. Who's, his life you know, basically hangs in the balance down the hallway. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an anxious picture, isn't it? Now move on to the next one. This one's called Not Guilty. There's brighter colors. Look at the man's face. It's a little different, isn't it? You see relief, peace, happiness. You see joy around the others around them. And then on the other side where, the, where these judges lie, where these judges are hanging out, do you see the cross? The top right? Subtle. And then to your left, you see another hallway. And it's not a hallway to a courtroom or a jail. It's the door to freedom outside. Isn't that a great picture? These two pictures show that we were awaiting the verdict. It was guilty. And then Jesus took our place. He took our verdict. He took our sentence. He took our punishment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we've experienced the full acquittal of God. And secondly, we experience the full freedom from sin and law. So if you would read with me in uh, verses 2 through 3, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not done by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So, when we come to be in Christ, something happens. So let's, real quick, let me just stop and explain. What does it mean, and how are you in Christ? Well, Paul has this long established this for seven chapters, over and over again, to be in Christ has to, to have believed Him and to receive the free gift of what He has given us. And when we believe and we receive Him, we come into union with Him. And so therefore, as He's, he's talked about before, that when because we are in Him, we are now spiritually connected to Him. When He died, we died. When He lives, we live. We become connected to Him in a way that is considered a uh, mystical, powerful, spiritual connection that we now have in Christ. And how do you get that? Belief and faith. Like, what don't I got to do? Nope. We'll get into that in a minute. Belief, trust, and faith. We are in Christ. Now certainly there's a, a spiritual reality that's going on behind the scenes. But if you're asking the question, well, what if I'm not in Christ? What if this? What if that? You're very asking those questions might lend us to think that God has done a work in your heart, in your life. And so when we come to be in Christ, we are now set free from what Paul calls the law of sin and death. What does he mean here? Well, I believe he means if you go back into Genesis, the very early chapters, 
God made man in his image, called it good, and, here's, and he created woman to be with him. Are uh, thankful for that, our mothers. It's Mother's Day. And that, and that man, that woman, rebelled against God and disobeyed him and began to seek their own way. And this own way we call sin. Martin Luther, I loved how he called it, he called it self-righteousness. That every human being seeks their own righteousness. Well, I don't seek to be that righteous. I'm actually a pretty bad guy. No, what he means is self-rightness. To, to try to fulfill our own desires, to, to make our own way, and to, to, to approve ourselves, to ourselves, to whoever, and maybe even to God. And we do this in two different ways. People pursue self-righteousness in two different ways. One way is religiously. You can be very religious in your sin. And trying to be good on your own can be very sinful. How do I know? The, the Pharisees were pros at being good. And Jesus came against them. Why? Because they were trying to be righteous in their own merits, in their own measure. And the problem with that is that the law of God is ruthless. There is absolutely not even the smallest grain or dot of grace in the law. Do you understand that? In other words, if you do not fulfill every perfect aspect of the law, you have broken it. And if you have not fulfilled every little dot and letter of the law, joyfully, in the joy and the blessing of your heart, you have not fulfilled it. And so you are a fool to think, oh, I can do this. I can make myself good enough before God. And the law will ruthlessly tear you to pieces. Another way we seek self-righteousness is irreligiously. We create our own law. And we begin to live by our own law. We begin to try to become whole and complete and right in our own way. And we seek that in a million different ways. And what we see is that both of these lead to death. The law condemning us before God. And our sin and license breaks us and destroys us, leading us to death. The wages of sin is death. Is what Paul lays out for us throughout this this book. And shows that because we have sin within us, the law itself, if we try to live the law, actually kills us and brings us to a place of further death. You see this in Romans uh, chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the conclusion is, whether you're religious or not, we're doomed. We stand under condemnation. And we stand in this, this cycle of, of, of 
of trying to do better, trying not to do better. I love the passage before this in chapter 7 where Paul's like, well, when I try to do good, I, my heart wants to do bad. And, when I try, and, and I almost have to defy my own conscience, my own heart to do what God would have me to do. And then he concludes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we are under the law of sin and death. Outside of Christ, people are, are in this law, and everything they try to do, good or bad, it leads them to death. So the, the good news here, though, is that in Christ, there's no condemnation because we are set free from the law of sin and death. And the way we're set free from that is that in Christ, Christ brought the law of the Spirit. The law of Spirit in life. And, and how? How does Christ bring the law of Spirit in life? We see in verses 3 through 4 it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, or for sin, excuse me, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh but not the Spirit. So he's saying that Jesus frees us from this cycle of trying to prove ourselves, trying to find ourselves, whatever it might be. He breaks the chains of that by sending Jesus... To fulfill it for us. To accomplish it for us. So that now we can stand before God. Not as sinners. Not as somebody who has sinned. But somebody who is declared righteous. Perfect and beloved in the presence of God himself. Instead of seeking our own and pressing off into our own way. Religiously or irreligiously. God then sending his son creates a new law for us. And so we are no longer under his law or even the law of sin and death. We now stand under a new law. So it would be as if you left the United States of America and you went to another country. You are no longer under the laws of the United States of America. You are now under the laws of Germany or Zimbabwe. Or whatever it is. And the laws of the United States of America no longer have any bearing in your life. You are now under the law of that country. And that puts some American citizens in some trouble sometimes, doesn't it? Like I know some, some people who were just set free in, in North Korea because they broke some laws there and were in work camps. It's awesome that they were let go. But what would, would the difference be? If you moved from a country, let's say, where it was illegal to be a Christian. And you moved to the United States, and all of a sudden now, under a new law, you are free. You are free. And that is what is declared to us here in, this, in these, first, these first few verses. So in Christ, we are set free from the law of sin in Christ. So... In Christ, Christ obeyed the law perfectly and became your sacrifice. And if you trust that sacrifice, it will be sufficient. 
And when you trust in Christ, he is sufficient to set you free from the law of sin and death. So there's the two truths. That we are under no condemnation. We are fully, completely acquitted in every way from any guilt or judgment. No condemnation. And that sets us free from these vain, futile pursuits of our own. And here's the good news. Last point here is that we experience that now. We experience it now. There's a key word when he says this. There is therefore now. Did you see the word in the, in the verse? There is therefore now. Now, you've got to be careful about this because you can change these words. We've already said that. You can take away words. You can add words. And you can change words. And anytime you do that, you begin to destruct the meaning of a verse like this. And so if you change the word now, let's change it to yesterday. There's now yesterday no condemnation. Or tomorrow. There was condemn, there's no condemnation tomorrow. Or a few years down the road. Or when you get better. Or when you get your life cleaned up. Or when you're more holy. Or you rewrite, read your Bible more. Or you go to church more consistently. Or you're more generous. You're not as nasty and selfish with your spouse. Or whatever it is. You cannot add those words. It is no condemnation now. Which means now and always. There's a struggle, isn't there, though? We struggle with a verse like that. It's too complete. It's too, fi- it's too much. And Christians throughout history struggle with this verse. You know, and I know it goes way back. So if you have a King James version of the Bible, the authorized version, we call it, you will notice there's, a, an, there's an extra phrase in that verse. And, and uh, it says, um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that do to the text here? Think about it. So there's no condemnation when and only when I walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh. So now, it's not just no condemnation laid out there, harsh and real, radical. Now it's tempered. But, yes, of course there's no condemnation, but you have to walk according to the Spirit. And then you start to say, well, I don't walk according to the Spirit. I don't always do that. I actually rarely do that. You see the problem here? Well, the good news about the authorized version is that most scholars today realize that that is not a part of the original verse. That copyists, at some point in history, okay, I could go into all the reasons if y'all want, but y'all don't want to get bored by all the technical, historical reasons. But the oldest, most reliable manuscripts did not include these words, and nor did the uh, ancient church fathers, when they quoted their original earlier texts, did not include these words. So we can trust that they shouldn't be in there. And I'm glad they're not. But some copyists at some point saw this verse and thought, this is too much. If we tell people there's no condemnation, 
that the bullets of the gun are empty, they're just going to go do whatever they want to do. They're going to go party. And Paul actually answers that question earlier. He says um, that where uh, sin increases, grace abounds. In other words, you can, you can sin, 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 and the more you sin, God's grace multiplies and overflows it, overwhelms it. That's the end of chapter 5. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, he says, and he answers the question, what shall we say then to these things? If, if grace is that radical, sh- should we just go sin? Should we just go party? And that's the reality of the, if you want to know if your gospel is true, if it really makes you uncomfortable and makes you think, oh, I can go sin now, you're there. Now, we don't answer yes. He says, heck no. May it never be. Because how could we, who have received such a great gift, who have come into union with Christ, who connected with Him, who died with Him, now live with Him, go on sinning. Our hearts are changed. But it's it's hard, isn't it? On a day-to-day basis, we want to add something to these verses, don't we? We want to change the word now. We want to delete the word now. We want, to, we want to do anything we can because something in us struggles with the radical nature of the gospel. The gospel is radical. It says there, at this point in Christ, is never, ever, anymore condemnation. You exist, you live, as if you've never sinned nor been a sinner. That's pretty cool. That's beautiful truth. But the, here's, the, the problem is, the whispers come. And they say, well, you did that the other day. Or you thought that. Or you looked at that on the internet. Or you were selfish with your spouse. Or you whatever. You lied. You cheated. Whatever it was, the, 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 the whispers of our, of our sullied consciousness come up and they say, you, you, that can't be true of you. And the enemy chimes in, the great accuser, and says, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. There's condemnation. You can't turn to God. It's a struggle. It's real. And then when bad things happen in our lives or the threat of bad things happen, then we really struggle with it. Because then we're like, well, maybe this is God punishing me. Maybe this is God's hard hand. Finally, I'm getting what to do. What I deserve is coming. And now I'm in fear and dread. That's real stuff. We wonder, we think, gosh, because I was unfaithful here or my finances or in my life or whatever or that sin that I committed, God is causing these bad things in my life. And that, my friends, is a, is a lie from hell and it smells like smoke. Because what's declared here is absolute. There is therefore now no condemnation present tense, now, forever. It cannot be revoked. It is always and forever. 
So I have a diagnostic question for you. I love this. A guy named Jack Miller in a conference he used to do called uh, Sonship started his conference asking this question. And he asked the question, if God had a facial expression, and God's spirit he doesn't have a face, we know that, but if he did, what is that facial expression towards you? And it's amazing. I have to answer that sometimes. Even after hearing this question, hearing this verse so many times, I have to answer it sometimes. I think he's like just really frustrated. Like there's patches of hair missing from his head from pulling it out because of me. You know, or eye rolls. He eye rolls me all the time. You know, like the teenage kids do. Um, or he's just that face of disappointment. You know, like I would rather him be angry at me than just disappointed. That's, a, that's just more painful to me. Or he's just exacerbated. And some of us, he's just indifferent. He doesn't even care. And if you answer those in those ways, let me point you back to this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. You are now seen as perfect, righteous before God. The very court of God that was sent you into judgment for eternity now declares you acquitted, free. Free to go, free to rejoice, free now to run up into the Heavenly Father's presence and receive. To run into His courts and to His tables and to, to take a seat at His dinner table and to enjoy all that He has and all that He is. We are now under no condemnation. And now... Every part of God is absolutely for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, all of God's action towards you is now mercy and grace and love and goodness. It is not mixed. And there is not some days He's against you with wrath. And those are bad days. While other days He is with you with love. And some days He's aggravated with you. No. Every day, He is absolutely towards you, positively with mercy, grace, love, and goodness. And let me, let me tell you, Paul's going to get deeper into this as we go, okay? Because the, Jesus Christ, God and Jesus Christ, is always on your side, always for you. And later in this chapter, he says, what shall we say to these things? But down in verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? And he lists them. All the things that could have been against us. He says, who, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who stands against those whom God has acquitted? Who can accuse them? No one is the answer. So let me ask a couple questions to conclude. First of all, have you received this gift? Have you received the gift of acquittal? Have you received the gift of being set free 
from all that mess. Now, if you haven't, all you got to do is believe it and receive it. It's a free gift. You don't pay for it. You don't have to take a layaway. You don't have to have credit. It's a free gift. And if you are a believer and you have received that, let me encourage you to preach this to yourself every waking moment. When you wake up in the morning and you think, oh Lord, he is not, he's, God is not cool with me today. I don't feel it. We need to preach it to ourselves. There's a great song. We're going to, I think we're going to try to do it next week by a group called Ren Collective. And it's called Nailed to the Cross. Listen to these words. He says, when I stand accused by my regrets and the devil roars his empty threats, I will preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned. For Christ Jesus is, is my defense. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. The weight of guilt I bear no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Preach the gospel to yourself. You are no longer a man or a woman condemned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace in these words. What a powerful, radical message that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ. And Lord, we pray for those who are not in Christ they would call upon your name and they would receive 